Today on The State of Us, is your food as virtuous as you think and what you must know about modern agriculture? Welcome to The State of Us. I'm your host, Justin T. Weller, joined, of course, today by the friendly redneck liberal and senior resident historian extraordinaire here at True Chat, Mr. Lance L. Jackson. From organic to regenerative, food labels can have a halo effect so bright it's blinding. Here, a healthy skeptic's guide to what the buzzwords actually tell us. And that's from an article in the Wall Street Journal. We've also got a New York Times piece that's entitled, Did Farmers of the Past Know More Than We Do? And the Environmental Upside of Modern Farming. There's a lot of conflicting information out here. You hear a lot of things about climate change and how agriculture contributes to that, which it certainly does. Uh, but also, how has modern agriculture improved our food situation? And what do you need to know about food when you go to buy it at the grocery store? If you're concerned about what's in your food, whether or not it's okay for you, whether or not it's okay for your children, uh, and also uh, if you're concerned about your health and the planet's health. There's a lot of different things that you may want to know about this and what's happening with farmers today. This is near and dear to me. Uh, because I, I dealt with this directly in my own business, raising cattle, um, so I, I'm and chickens as well. Um, so we're going to talk about it from that angle, uh, but also look at all the different labeling. And uh, Lance himself, I believe, is uh, professed to be a, a lover of all food, so I, I'm sure that he'll be happy to discuss with us uh, his his taste preferences. Hey, you talked about this near and dear to your heart because you served in this business. It's near and dear to my heart because I like food. Because I eat this business. Yeah, I, I love good food. <laughs> yeah. I'll even eat bad food. But um, word of the day is fallow. Two syllables, a noun, F-A-L-L-O-W. And definition, land plowed but not seeded for one or more growing seasons to kill weeds, make the soil richer, etc. And then I like the second one, untrained, inactive, said especially of the mind. Now, that's not our listeners, but when you talk to others, their minds might be fallow and you need to get them to become regular listeners of the show. But fallow is the word of the day to leave the land unplanted so that it can regenerate itself. What a novel concept. Yes. Or an untrained or inattentive individual. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I, I like, uh, I think it's a good one because obviously it plays to our theme today, uh, but it also is one that I'm sure people aren't probably using as much uh, one so. that they probably don't know. That's why I thought I would use it. You know, you don't, it's, it's one that is used within the realm of the business, but it's one that if you are reading about the business, you might not know. And then it's like, hmm, what are they talking about when they say, you know, lying fallow? Interesting too, because of the sort of positive negative connotation, obviously in agriculture, it's a, it's an opportunity to regenerate, rebuild the soil, 
a, a positive thing to do. Um, maybe negative that you have to do it in the first place, but obviously from a mind standpoint, I, uh, most of us probably don't want to be described as having a fallow mind. <laughs> so, um, yeah, fascinating. So let, but Hey, you let it lay fallow the, the ground, not the mind. Um, and you can maybe not have to use as many herbicides and pesticides. Yes. Might not be as many drugs in our food. We could actually eat food that hasn't been drugged so that it would grow better for us. So as we talk about how food is grown today, um, there's a lot of different information out there, a lot of different information. And it can kind of be an overload, right? Because I mean, if if you're someone like Lance, you've been around a while, the terminology has changed over time. Um, and a lot of times things subtly change too, right? You've been buying something for a long time and they switch some ingredients and you don't think much of it. Uh, but is a lot of what you eat today, Lance, really... The same as what it was when you were a kid eating no. it? No. I can tell you because it's just not it doesn't it doesn't cook the same. It doesn't look the same when you do cook it. And it's there. You can tell that things are different. Doesn't mean that different is bad though, right? I don't want to be one of those old people that, oh, you know, well back in the day. That's not me. You know, so there are many things out there that are good. Um, but to say that it's the same. No, it's, you know, it, it in many cases obviously is not so the same. So in talking about the positive and negative changes, um, if you're someone out there who who is concerned about climate change, uh, you, we'd be remiss if we don't talk about agriculture because um, relatively uh, conservative scientific estimates put it at 11% of total U.S. US greenhouse gas emissions. Um so it definitely contributes, and it's a necessary thing, right? It's not going to be quite as simple um, from a standpoint of like transportation where we can say, well, we can move to electric, right? And we can um, green up the electric grid and, and we can remove a lot, if not all of the emissions. The problem is that, it, that agriculture, even if you address a lot of the transportation components of it, storage components, all of which require a lot of energy, by very nature... Uh, contributes to gas emissions because of the act of actually removing crops from the soil, eating them, throwing them away. Um, so really improving all of that and addressing it is a tricky process. There's Well, in, in many cases too, and this is probably an oversimplification, but we've talked multiple times, the majority of the population in the United States lives on the coast and the majority, vast majority of the food products are grown in the middle of the country. So when you talk about transportation, you know, the harvesting and getting goods to market, and it's not that there aren't farms on the coast because there's there are tons of farms in California. I get that and and Florida and even in upstate New York. But the Midwest is known for farming. And that's not where the majority of the population is these days. Yeah. And getting it there is obviously a big contributor. Raising it is is a big part of it. And there's different ways to raise it that impact it. Um, so we've kind of got two sort of contrasting opinions here, um, one from the Wall Street Journal, one from the New York Times. One uh, is basically an essay on the environmental upside of modern farming. And the way I look at this, Lance, and, and boil it down for people, I think, is that there, there's there's different truths here, and none of them are incorrect. One would say that modern agriculture is more efficient agriculture than it's ever been. That is true. 
um, agriculture has has never been this efficient before. So it's definitely more efficient, um, and that includes um, everything from from growing cop- crops to raising animals um, and and everything else that's that's related. It has become a very efficient industry relative to where it was many years ago. Well, you know, I'm such a visual learner. If our listeners don't know that, it's funny that I, you know, speak for a living, but I'm such a visual learner. If you connect to both these articles, the picture, there's a picture of a, of a farmer uh, unloading a hopper in 1948 and a picture of a farmer in his tractor in 2012. And it's just, it's mind-blowing. You know, you have you have one person using brute strength to try to get everything uh, out of his wood, yeah, <laughs> out of his wood uh, dump trailer, right, dump and then, truck, and then you have another person who's sitting there with like five computer screens, looking at them, not even paying any attention to what they're doing, driving through the field because, um, you know, now most farm tractors since the 1990s have GPS auto steering. So it's it's amazing. Here's one guy working really hard trying to get the crops in 1948. And 65 years later, here's a guy sitting there with five computer screens in his tractor helping him and telling the tractor where to go and what to do. It's The side-by-side there is just huge. So if you get a chance and you don't usually go to look at the articles, I think today it really makes sense if you're a visual learner like me. Yeah. And and to put that into numbers, farm production in the United States has nearly tripled over the past 70 years. Think about that. A tripling of production in the U.S. in just 70 years. So in less less than a century, we have tripled our agricultural farm production. I mean, incredible. But we haven't necessarily tripled the land under production. Okay. So the land has increased. But the other side of that is what we're able to extract per acre has also increased. So all of that's true. And generally speaking, taken at face value, that's a positive. There is a cost, though, that that comes at. And that's the part where I think people get concerned is what level of chemical and genetic engineering is required to achieve such results. Um which is kind of where, Lance, the other article comes in, is did the farmers of the past know more than we do? The way that I would sum that one up is they talk about if you live in the Midwest or you've ever been there, you've probably seen primarily two crops. They are corn and soybeans, right? That's what you see most of the time nowadays. Now, if you're as wise in years as our friendly redneck liberal is, you would probably remember that there was a time where you saw a lot of a lot of additional crops throughout the year. Wheat, oat, alfalfa, you know, all kinds of different. You could drive down and you would know what the farmer was doing. You know, I remember growing up in a rural community, they would plant because they were rotating their crops to save the land. So one thing to think about in that process is that you might say, well, how do we go from, if we have to keep the soil healthy, how do we go from, you know, a a three or four crop rotation to a two crop rotation? Well, we've gotten, we've engineered our seeds. 
uh, and we have engineered them specifically to respond to uh, the nutrients that we can artificially return to the soil um, and respond better, be more drought resistant, um, you know, grow taller, grow stronger. Um, and there are a lot of positives to those things. The downside, of course, is that we're increasingly reliant on chemical and artificial automation uh, to supplement what naturally would have occurred, say, in the days of, you know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. Um, and then, of course, what really started to take root um, late 1800s and into the early 1900s, which was multi-crop rotation, um, including things like, as Lance mentioned, clover, wheat, small grains, uh, turnips, things that you could feed your animals through the winter, um, in addition to the traditional corn and soybean uh, rotation. So it wasn't that corn and soybeans weren't there. It's just that we included a lot of other elements. So really, the, the main difference, and I think this is important to illustrate for people, is the principle of needing to return certain nutrients to the soil to grow strong, healthy crops. That, that same principle has existed for hundreds of years, right? Um, we haven't done anything new in that regard, other than the way we do it is new. Um, and that's what raises questions then about what is in the food that you're eating? Are we sure that that's safe? Uh, and how can you make good sense uh, of what to buy at the grocery store if you're both concerned about your health, uh, your children's health, and the health of the planet? Let's talk about that. Keep it here on The State of Us, and we'll be right back. In early American agriculture, only sophisticated farmers like Washington and Jefferson were using crop rotations in their fields. There was simply too much good land available. It was too easy to farm a piece and then move on when the soil was depleted. And the article doesn't say this, but it is an appropriate place to leave it in. And so what do you do? You move on to other soil. Well, you leave your other field fallow uh, and you leave it for several years and then maybe you can come back and use it again. In one sense, that is still how modern agriculture works. You look to the future and discard the past. A modern rotation includes only corn, soybeans, fertilizer, and pesticides. Whatever you may think about genetically modified crops, the switch to those varieties has driven the rush to the two-crop system. Those crops are designed to tolerate the presence of herbicides. The result is that farmland has been inundated with glyphosate, the herbicide genetically modified crops are engineered for. One thing that I will say makes it hard to get your arms around all of this, Lance, it's an excellent point. Many of the big pharma manufacturers, right, of herbicides and pesticides you know what else they produce? Seeds. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, so there's a, so I mean, there's a, a coming together. Yes. They, they genetically modify the seeds to react in a positive manner to the herbicides and pesticides that they're also selling you. So you can't really use one without the other. And of course, I mean, am I understanding you correctly as a novice? They also fund much of the research into the application of that. Now, 
I want to be clear. So these to, seeds will get you this much more harvest, and you get the, the 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 much higher yield out of your field if you use these herbicides and pesticides with these seeds. And they're not lying, but they manufacture all of those things as well as create the study that shows you what a higher yield you can get from your fields. Exactly. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so has it, has it increased yields? Yes, that is true. Um, however, are they using less chemicals than they used to? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but that they're comes, raking in more money. Exactly. Okay. So they're, they're not doing it for noble intent, right? Um, they do it because it makes them money. And I think we all know that there's a history of, so the important thing that I just want to highlight there is notice that nowhere in there am I talking about the farmer, right? The farmer is trying to make a living. Um, so the farmer is going to do what the industry will tolerate and yield the best return. So if the only good option to farm, you know, 4,000 acres is to put a genetically modified seed in the ground and to use the proper rotation of herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers on your field, then isn't that what you're going to do? But I mean, the farmer's still taking all the risk involved with, is it going to rain at the right time? Is it going to rain enough? Is it going to rain too much? Am I going to be able to afford the fuel to either plant the crops or harvest the crops? Because I've known times around here, correct me if I'm wrong, where farmers have let their fields lie fallow because they couldn't afford the diesel fuel to go in and get the crops because the price for the crops was going to get them less in market than it would have to pay the diesel fuel to get in there and harvest the crop. So they just let the crop sit there all winter and degenerate and turn the cattle loose or let the deer have a heyday because they couldn't afford to harvest the crop that they had planted because the market price was so low, it was going to cost them more to harvest than it was what they were going to get in market. So we talked about yield because see, here's another one of those things that I think people really got to latch onto. You might say, well, yields are better, so it's all worth it. Well, there's a lot of reasons that they're better, right? And switching to the two crop rotation is not necessarily why they're better. See, agriculture, if we look at the history of it, big educational push to make farmers smarter and better probably started 50s, 60s, right? Really heavy. Farm bureaus start to come into existence. They start to organize farmers together. They start to get them access to information. Lo and behold, Lance, though, this is also the time of the rise of... Uh, big seed companies, and big fertilizer and pesticide companies. So simultaneously, who's helping support farm bureaus? Who is right there saying, yes, we want to educate farmers. We want to teach them the right way to do things, you know, the most efficient. The people thing. that are going to sell them the stuff that they need to become better farmers. So did the yields get better because of the new methods or did they get better because farmers were better educated on how to use these methods? Well, uh, you might find this interesting, but a recent study by agronomists from the Department of Agriculture, Iowa State University, 
and the University of Minnesota. So you got the federal government and two of your largest agricultural universities in the nation found that there's nothing obsolete about four crop rotation. It produces the same yields. It sharply reduces the toxicity of freshwater runoff, and it eliminates many of the problems associated with genetically modified crops, including the emergence of glyphosate-resistant weeds. It's also simply better for the soil. A four-crop rotation using conventional crop varieties, along with much lower applications of fertilizer and herbicides and some animal manure, works every bit as well as the prevailing monotony of corn and soybeans. That's from the Department of Agriculture. So can we produce, I mean, here's my question, using the old four-crop rotation, just highlighted all of those positives, can we produce the food amounts that we're producing now? Yields, yes. Here's the key, though. The yields are going to be different, right? Because we're going to produce less corn and soybeans. Because we're not going to grow corn and soybeans in every inch of ground every year. And here's the obstacle. As we've scaled, right? Because the the other thing is, when when people say agriculture is complex, gosh, folks, I sure hope that you take that to heart. Because boy, the history of it and understanding how it's all arrived at where we are today is a tricky, weedy process that involves a lot of big business, a lot of small farmers going out of business, a lot of consolidation, and changes in how Americans eat and the number of Americans. We used to get by on lower yields partly because there were less people, right? We could afford four crop rotation because we had not moved to so many heavily processed foods that require what as a base? Soybeans. That's a huge a huge filler ingredient in many processed foods. You look at your, uh, you know, especially cereals, right? Tons of grains uh, that are based on building the foundations of modern food. Um, And so one of the issues to moving to returning to a four crop rotation and educating farmers on how to do that efficiently and effectively is that we would suddenly have, for example, influx of turnips, right? Well, how many people listening to the show, I I am curious, eat turnips on a regular basis, you know? Well, the good news is you don't have to eat them all because those can be fed to sheep and cattle um, and a lot of turnips, you know? Yes, they can be. We feed them corn, which actually is not something that out in nature, most cattle would be eating a lot of. Um, They'd be eating far more, um, you know, legumes, um, all, all sorts of grasses, right? Um, they, they definitely get a hold of root vegetables, turnips, carrots, um, that kind of stuff. So, and, and that leads into the climate equation of why does agriculture produce the level of greenhouse gas emissions it does? Well, part of the reason is, and people always laugh about this, right? But the, the methane emissions from the animals is a, is a substantial contributor, you know, now the transportation component actually contributes uh, a heavy portion, but there's good there's good reason to believe that's going to change. Um, you know, as time progresses here, and uh, more and more electric vehicles and the power of electric semis and efficiency of all of that progresses, a lot of that's going to change. But part of the reason that animals are producing um, the level of gas they produce is because they're not eating what they would eat naturally. Well, and again, here's the yin and yang of this whole topic, right? And this was buried 
halfway through the article and we both found it. But Americans eat too much meat, five times as much as in 1940. You hear that? We eat five times more meat today than we did 80 years ago, making the environmental damage from livestock production a major worry. Now, the yin and yang is for every pound of beef produced in the United States, it now requires 19% less feed, 30% fewer animals, and 33% less land than in the 1970s. So we, on one hand, do a, a much better job of producing beef without hurting the environment, but we have to produce five times more. And our ability to process the meat, arguably, if we look at the dietary science of it all, has decreased because of our intake of other process, heavily processed foods. Uh, we did a lot of work uh, when I was raising cattle lance on, on educating people about the difference between good and bad cholesterol and how the composition of your meat, but not just your meat, the other things you eat play into your ability to effectively metabolize uh, and make use of that product, um, which is why things are, are rarely as simple as calorie count, right? Right. Um, and are rarely as simple as you ought to eat less meat. Uh, well, we could eat you know, certain volumes of meat, but not if we're eating all these other heavily processed foods um, and, and then raising levels of cholesterol. And again, back to that, why are Americans less healthy today, despite the fact that we have access, arguably, to better food than we've ever had? Well, that's because, you know, we've drastically increased two things. We've drastically increased our processed food consumption while sim simultaneously increasing our meat intake. Not a good combination. <laughs> Not wise. And lowering our exercise by sitting at a desk instead of doing yeah. manual labor jobs. L less active, more processed food intake, which is harder for your body to break down. And then we've topped that off with aggressive meat intake. Um, meat is good for you. In the right quantities, and if you're eating the right balancing uh, nutrients, it is that effect of you want a, a diversity of items in your diet. Um, and if it's strictly heavily processed food and and meat, that's not great. So let's talk about the labels, Lance. Uh, is your food as virtuous as you think it is? Well, we've talked a little bit about that so far, I think. Uh, we, we have laid plain how a lot of it comes to be and who's behind it all. Uh, we also did a great episode recently that I would strongly encourage people to check out on uh, the meatpacking industry and ranchers. Um, I think that was very insightful into understanding from, from an animal standpoint who's behind a lot of what's happening and, and how it's affecting uh, the beef industry. So be sure to check that out as well. Let's talk about food labels and what you got to know. Keep it here on The State of Us, and we'll be right back. USDA organic, natural, free-range, cage-free, pasture-raised. I assume, Lance, you're, you're, you're strolling through your local grocery store, as you do, uh, poking around, looking at stuff, finding the best deals. I'm sure you've seen all these terms thrown around in the grocery store. Well, to the point that I don't even know why I would buy it and what it's for and, and what is good about it. Who's There's who and so what's many, what? There are so many labels that, you know, you, you don't know your vegetable or your fruit without a scorecard 
I mean, it's like, okay, what does all this mean? Put a chart up here. Am I actually buying something that's better for me? Am I actually buying something that's better for my children? Am I buying something that's better for the planet? I don't know because they all say, well, they're green and they're organic and they're this and they're that. And it's like, well, how do I know what's best for what it is that I'm interested in buying this product for, which is basically to eat? Oh, and we know we won't even mention the inflation rate that is causing the trip to the grocery store to need to take out another loan against the house. Um Wow. I mean, what do you do? You you have all these messages and you're trying to get the best bang for your dollar when you go to the store, but yet you still want to do what's right for your family and feed them the best products for them so they'll be the healthiest. And what do you do with all these signs? What do they mean? So let's talk about uh, some of the, the buzz ones that you see very frequently uh, in the store, which generally speaking, aren't very regulated. Uh, natural. So this means that a product is free of artificial or synthetic dyes, coloring, flavorings, and preservatives. Items labeled natural can still contain GMOs, which is genetically modified organisms, as well as ingredients grown using agricultural chemicals or synthetic fertilizers. So natural really is talking about um, more of the appearance of food, they haven't poked a needle in it to make it look better. All right, they haven't. They haven't uh, increased the red coloring content to make you think that that raspberry is really enticing. You know, um, it, what you see is what you're getting is kind of the way uh, to to think about this one. Um, and also, uh, lack of of artificial preservatives. Okay, this is important because you'll pick up some natural products that'll say no artificial preservatives. You might say, well, what does that mean? Well, for example, if you get beef that's uh, like heavily seasoned with salt, well, salt is a type of preservative. So um, natural preservatives may exist. Uh, free range. Use of this term only requires that animals have access to the outdoors but there's no stipulation as to whether they do, in fact, spend any time outside. Uh, so I can have a field outside my chicken coop and then say I raise free-range chickens. I can advertise that even though the chickens never leave the coop? Right, yeah. If you got the little door open, you know, but they never actually go outside, yes, technically they're, they're, uh, they're still free-range. Free range. Uh, okay. Yes. Yep. And again, a lot of these terms, if you actually, if you take the term literally and think about what it is, the, the free range terms comes from the longer explanation of they are free to range. Doesn't mean they are ranging. It means they are free to do so. And part of what we find, especially with chickens, because this is where you see a lot of this free range terminology, is that the, the chickens that we are using that are heavily crossbred, right? I, I've raised these chickens, Okay. They don't go outside on their own because they're too, uh, this sounds bad. They're too freaking stupid. Okay. And they're too fat. They tend to lay around. Their legs are not very strong. Uh, they often lose the feathers on part of their underbelly uh, because they lay so freaking much. Uh, and if you chase them outside, as, as we had done a couple times early on in raising them, a lot of them would die because they'd lay in the sun and they'd be too, they were literally too stupid to get to the shade to not overheat. And the shade was just a couple feet away from them. It's not like they had to go very <clears> far. And they were also top heavy yes. because of the way they've been crossbred that 
they have for the, huge for, breast for meat. the huge breast meat that their weak legs couldn't carry them anywhere. Yes, hard to walk. Um, so we obviously we we switched away from away from them and went to a more um, a, a more quote unquote natural uh, you know uh, meat chicken. So cage free. Uh, again, let's think of this literally. This de- designation typically applies to eggs. It means just what it says, that the animals cannot be kept in cages, but they can still be heavily crowded into a single barn. So is it better than being in a cage? Yes, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're out roaming around. The vision that I get with cage-free is I'm just pulling up to the driveway and I see these chickens just all over the place, right. just pecking away. Just having a good day. And that's day. not necessarily what, what no. that means. Yeah. <laughs> you can still hem them into a barn and, you know, uh, tuck them breast to breast. And, and not be able to, for them to be able to turn around. Right. You know, you put but enough they're, in there. They're not in a cage. But they're not in a cage. So, uh, pasture raised. This descriptor implies, notice the terminology there, that animals spend their lives roaming outdoors and eating grasses, but there is no federal standard for it and no regular inspections. Got to be very careful about pasture raise because much like your natural terminology or your free range terminology, actually, they have access to pasture and maybe they've been out on pasture once a week or once a month. (laughs) And also what qualifies as pasture? Are we talking about a dirt strip that's got a blade of grass in it? Or are we talking about a lush green field where they go out and roam around and eat whatever they want? Uh, that's again, without the regulatory component, uh, it's kind of complicated. So now let's come to the one that actually does have the regulation USDA organic. This federally overseen certification requires that crops be non GMO and produced without most synthetic pesticides and fertilizers. Grain and hay must be 100% organic livestock raised without antibiotics or added hormones and with the ability to engage in quote natural behaviors such as grazing or spending time on pasture so that is the one of all of these different ones that actually is the federal government's backing uh, signifying that there are inspections standards that have to be lived up to to meet this qualification um that's the one that we all, you know, probably are the most familiar with hearing about and seeing. Uh, but it is important that if you see the USDA organic label, um, you can't just put that on your product. In fact, there's heavy penalties uh, if you're found to be illegally using that um, descriptor. Uh, so labeling something organic, if in fact it is not organic, is definitely a serious situation. Now, mislabeling something as natural or free range or cage free a little more leeway there a, a lot more, more leeway, leeway yeah. a lot more leeway but what does usda organic really mean lance in, in terms of climate well not a lot um if you're looking for climate you get into the private labeling uh, the private marketing label um such as regenerative organic certified and land to market um those are both organizations that build on um, or are in place of the USDA organic label. Um, so some of them have prerequisites for you have to be certified organic before you qualify for this label. I'll just end with saying, Lance, you know that I'm generally not in favor of more government regulation or oversight. 
Uh, in this case, however, I think with the direction things are going, it's important that we get some some real experts at the Department of Agriculture and food science experts to come together and say, we can keep USDA organic, but let's talk about what is the other label or labels that we should offer? Um, because to me, that's the biggest fault um, in the labeling area right now is that it's too confusing, to your point. A lot of times people don't buy any of it. I don't want the natural or the free range, the cage free, the organic. I don't know what freaking any of that means. And I'm not going to buy none of it because it's all a hoax. That's part of the problem because organic is not in the same ballpark as those other things, but it often gets looped and thrown in there um, because of the marketing tactics that people are employing because there's no regulation. And that makes total sense. People are trying to get you to buy their products so they can stay in business so they can make money and you, the consumer, as usual, you have to take it upon yourself to be informed because the marketers are just trying to sell the product. They're not really trying to inform you. They're trying to give you just enough information to buy, to buy what they are trying to sell. So buyer beware and educate yourself. Don't let your mind be fallow. All right. Educate yourself on what all these different labels mean and know what you want and what it is you're looking for and go look for those items. If you need to be educated on them, we've got them linked at thestateofus.org. There's a full article that talks about each of the labels um, and which ones you might want to buy given, you know, what you're looking for. So um, we have that information resource available to you. Please make use of it. Why do we have this conversation today, Lance? True Chat's mission is to educate people by providing honest, open, and respectful conversations. And when you're talking to people and they say, well, where'd you find out all this neat information about our food and, and how it's grown and what it's done and how it's changed? Tell them. You ought to listen to this podcast, The State of Us. It's on Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, and everywhere podcasts are found. The State of Us is available Tuesdays and Thursdays, first thing in the morning, as a podcast. We're also heard on the weekends on AM and FM radio stations across the country. Who, who's got the win today, Lance? I don't know, probably you, but I think I did a good job for not being a farmer. I, I had us tied, actually. Did you? I okay. Did. I did. I only ever used it in the agricultural sense, so oh. uh, that would be... That'd be the trouble there. I wasn't able to to spring in to cross-reference some, some fallowness. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, for Which the, is a word, fallowness. Fallowness. Yes. For the state of us, I'm Justin T. Weller. I'm Lance Jackson. Special thanks to producer Bradley Butch, and thank you all, our audience, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Be the change. Be sure to check out our website, thestateofus.org, for books, articles, and all the ways to tune in, thestateofus.org.